Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. How will company employee benefits change now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned? Coming up, we talk to experts in employment law and human resources, and we hear from a full-time hourly worker at PetSmart who wants her company to be more outspoken about abortion care. First, here in Connecticut, meteorologists say we'll finally get a break from this oppressive heat wave over the last several days, with thunderstorms arriving today. On Sunday, parts of our state saw record temperatures of 96 degrees. My North Carolina relative visiting Connecticut this weekend did not get a break from the heat that he was expecting. Now, the heat wave has jumped across the pond, too, with Europe seeing record hot temperatures. The sweltering weather can be deadly. The Washington Post reporting nearly 69 million Americans at risk of dangerous heat exposure and heat-related illnesses. Now, while policymakers here and abroad debate the climate emergency, we wanted to talk about the health impacts here at home. Joining us now on Zoom is Dr. Rachel Doty-Beach. She's an assistant professor in emergency management at the University of New Haven and also coordinates the master's program in emergency management. Rachel, welcome to our show. Good morning, Lucy. Thanks for having me. Our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I mentioned these high temperatures we've seen in our region, Rachel, leading to heat advisories, and I understand there's different levels of heat warnings from advisories to emergencies. Can you talk about the differences? Yes, it can actually be quite confusing to people who aren't in the know about the different types of systems that are used to rank heat warnings and heat advisories. Sometimes people will hear levels considering how, how extreme the heat is. And if you're under say a level two heat advisory, that means that you're one away from being an extreme heat event. So level one is the most extreme type of heat event and a level four means that there is no event, but it can get extremely confusing because the heat advisory and excessive heat watches and excessive heat warnings are also uh, issued by the National Weather Service in some instances, and they can depend on your location in the United States, whether you're east or west of the Blue Ridge Mountains, and the timing of the event. So if it's going to be within 12 or 24 hours, if it's going to be within 24 to 48 hours. So uh, the big things for people to know when they're considering their own safety during a heat event is to pay attention to the temperature and the heat index, which tells how much humidity is in the air. And that affects how we feel the heat with our bodies, how our bodies can actually cool us off using sweat that evaporates from our skin. But if the air is filled with humidity, that sweat can't evaporate as easily. And so our bodies are under additional stress. So over the weekend, uh, the high was 96, I think, uh, on Sunday, but we heard meteorologists saying with the heat index, it'd feel like more like 100 degrees, Rachel. Exactly. And so 
um, these types of advisories and these levels are to warn people to stay out of the sun, to uh, make sure that they are either in an air-conditioned environment or if they can't get to one, to take actions that will help to cool the temperature around them or make sure that their bodies aren't producing additional uh, heat through work or strenuous activity. You know, some of us, when we see these uh, forecasts, we're like, okay, we're just going to stay indoors, have the AC cranked. But this really is concerning for people with particular health conditions like asthma. Yes, very much so, uh, especially people who live in urban areas. Uh, the, the heat reacts with nitri uh, nitrogen oxides that are given off by cars and power plants, industrial boilers and refineries and can create ozone uh, when combined with heat and sunlight. And the hotter it is, the more ozone is produced. And so people with asthma will get the ozone is a primary ingredient in smog, what is commonly known as smog, the air pollutant. So it, during these heat events, especially in urban areas where there are a lot of cars and there's a lot of heat produced, not just from the t air temperature, but also from all of the hardscape, the concrete and asphalt absorbing the heat that can uh, make those types of symptoms, as you say, with people in asthma, a whole lot worse. I mean, when you mention urban areas and, and, and the infrastructure, all the concrete, I'm thinking about what we hear is urban heat islands. Yes, uh, they're actually, um, they do create their own weather patterns at times. The amount of heat that's absorbed by all that asphalt and concrete is given off at night, which can of course, heat up the nighttime, which is the time that we're supposed to be cooling off. And that can make the urban areas and, and areas that have a lot of that kind of hardscape concrete even more uh, susceptible to these heat events. They trying, many cities are now trying to provide more greenscaping and soil that can help to offset those effects of the, the concrete and also to clean the air with the photosynthesis that happens with the leaves and the plants. Uh, there's, there's been studies that show buildings that have rooftop gardens like skyscrapers that have a garden on top can actually cool the building temperature inside because the top of the roof is not absorbing all of that heat. It's helping to uh, reflect it and um, the soil and the plants offset that heat absorption. I know we've talked about uh, tree planting on our show before, but do you know of any um, in, in the urban areas that have these rooftop gardens uh, that they're implementing, Rachel? Um, yes, I know. Well, actually, Paris right now is, is trying to, although uh, from what I've heard, they're having problems because to greenscape, sometimes they're cutting down the largest and oldest of trees. Um, so uh, there are a lot of cities around the world and Europe and, and um, in Asia that have implemented some of these, uh, yes, like you say, rooftop gardens and also vertical landscaping. So they try to uh, attach trellises or incorporate plants on the sides of buildings too. So if you can imagine the tops of roofs uh, offsetting uh, urban heat island effects. Then if you take the sides into consideration too, you can offset that even more. 
I'd love to hear uh, whether that's happening even in our state. You're hearing Dr. Rachel Doty Beach, Assistant Professor of in Emergency Management at University of New Haven, as we talk about uh, the heat wave uh, as well as these uh, more consistent heat advisories that we've had over the last week. You know, anecdotally, you know, living in in, in New England now, uh, gosh, uh, for about 15 years, I feel like the the summers are getting hotter, Rachel. And so when we think about what the data show in terms terms of, of how summer is changing and these frequent heat waves uh, might be something that are more commonplace? Yes, they are. Uh, they are more commonplace now and forecasters say that they will become even more commonplace in the future and that when they do happen, they can become more severe, which is what we're already seeing. Uh, and we do expect that to get worse, unfortunately. So the more people can educate themselves about staying cool and about extreme heat events, the safer that they can uh, keep themselves and their families. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Meanwhile, we've heard from Connecticut officials that the state, I believe, is in a level two drought. Should we be concerned, Rachel? Yes, so the effects of drought, of course, are compounded by extreme heat events and uh, stress out not only people, but crops and, um, and animals as well. So the, the effects of say, you know, farmers on farmers on agriculture, uh, it, it can also affect the timing of watering. Of course, you don't want to under a drought condition, you don't want to stress the water supply too much, but at the same time, you need to make sure that the plants are getting the water that they need. The crops are going to be watered. And also with the increasing heat, as you were saying, moving northward, uh, we also get more species of insects and um, possible feeders on those crops moving in during times where we wouldn't have seen them before. So uh, timing of watering being you know, in early morning or at night where the evaporation rate is going to be less than it is during the hot hours of the day is important. And um, just pres preserving our water supplies. Of course, we've seen what's happening out west uh, with with their conditions, and we hope that that doesn't come here. You know, when it gets hot, people will head to local lakes and other bodies of water. But we know that extreme heat also impacts uh, these areas, including um, algae bloom. I just saw a story that Fox 61 did a Coventry Lake closing because of an algae bloom. This is really problematic when we think about ways people want to stay cool. Absolutely. Uh, lakes, ponds, um, rivers and streams, especially bodies of water that don't have a flow, are more prone to collect uh, high concentrations of, as you say, algae or bacteria that can be harmful to, to our health if we try to swim in it. So the, lower the water level, it's just if you have some things in a body of water that are dangerous to people and you lower the water level, but those things stay at the same concentration, you're going to have a higher concentration of them. So you're more likely to feel the effects uh, if you if you bathe in them. And yes, as you say, that's going to affect the range of opportunities that people have to keep themselves cool during these events. Given uh, that your expertise is in the field of emergency management, you know, how are you seeing, um, you know, local governments and, and others responding uh, to these more frequent heat waves? Uh, we know that there are cooling centers, of course, but I'm wondering if you can talk about long-term planning. Um, yes, long-term planning is tied into those sorts of questions about climate change, as we've seen in terms of policy and the way these things are approached. 
And like you say, the immediate, the, the short-term response are things like opening cooling centers, making sure people have places to go uh, during these heat events, making sure that there's water available for drinking. Um, it, different municipal areas have different plans and then rural areas really are um, more concerned with the uh, effects of say, as you say, like the water levels, making sure warnings are out for swimming areas uh, when the water is dangerous to, to go into. Um, and so there is a definite difference between, as you say, the short-term uh, range of emergency responses versus the longer range and long-term planning when it comes to emergency management of these events. And the, the predicament that we're in, again, with these heat waves, you know, with the um, the strain uh, that is placed on our electric grid, but also when we think about uh, the ozone, the emissions coming from all these air conditioners, air conditioners churning. Rachel, I wonder if you can talk about that. Yes, um, that's actually a, a well, there, there are many conversations happening about right. that now. Uh, one of them that uh, people may be interested to hear about are the, the issue of using heat pumps uh, more than air conditioners. Uh, this is growing, growing popularity in Europe right now. And even some governments are uh, giving people incentives, monetary incentives to install heat pumps or cooling. Heat pumps are, are, they're not a brand new technology. They've been around for quite some time, but they've been improved a lot in the past 20 or so years uh, where to simplify things, they, they look like a like an outdoor central air conditioning unit, but their function is to pump hot air out of an enclosed space and cool air in during hot weather and then pump hot air in and cool air out during cool weather. And they take up significantly less electricity than conventional air conditioners or um, heaters, furnaces. So uh, they can, and they also uh, are low emissions. So they can really help with that stress on the grid, as you were saying, in these kinds of events. And they can also help to save people money and they can help to lower emissions all at the same time. Uh, before we let you go, Rachel Doty Beach, uh, the issue of, of helping people stay healthier when there is extreme heat, of course, staying hydrated. Any uh, last uh, words that you wanna leave our listeners? Um, there was one trick that I picked up living for several years in Southeast Louisiana with no air conditioning. And that is if you have a box fan, you can put a bucket of ice or those like freezer packs uh, right behind it, like up on a stool a little bit so that it's right behind that central part of the box fan. And when you turn it on, it can it can start to circulate some cooler air uh, as that ice melts. And then if you can just keep replacing it, uh, it is a way to cool down an enclosed space. Also too, to, to darken and you know, close the close your blinds, close your curtains, and uh, limit your light use. Lights create heat. So um, cool, dark places uh, are what to seek when you've got this kind of heat, this kind of heat wave going on. You've been hearing Dr. Rachel Doty Beach, again, Assistant Professor of Emergency Management at University of New Haven. Rachel, thanks for your time today. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Where We Live. Up next, we pivot to talking about the corporate world, specifically to learn how companies are responding to the overturn of Roe v. Wade. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Now, when Roe v. Wade was overturned, Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont recorded a video message earlier this month appealing to business owners in other states. With the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, there are many states across the country outlawing a woman's right to make her own reproductive choices. Not here in Connecticut, not as long as I'm governor. So this may be a time for you to think about taking a look at Connecticut as a place to move your business. Now, Lamont is currently seeking re-election against GOP opponent Bob Stefanowski. The Connecticut Mirror reported that after the video message went out, the state's business development organization, Advanced CT, had received at least one inquiry from a woman-owned company in Ohio. Now, we reached out to Advanced CT to find out if the state had received any more inquiries from out-of-state companies after the governor's video message, but we did not receive a reply by airtime. Now, we wanted to talk more about corporate America to learn how companies Companies have responded with Roe v. Wade being overturned. How will employee benefits change? Joining us first on Zoom is Mike Golden, lecturer and director of advocacy at the University of Texas School of Law, an employment law expert. Mike, welcome to our show. Good morning, Lucy. Thanks for having me. Our listeners can join as well. What do you want to know about how Roe's overturn will impact the workplace? Our number, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Mike, I'll start first. What was your reaction with the, with the decision? Well, you know, as a, as a lawyer and a law professor, my, my first reaction was professional, which is Roe v. Wade was the law of the land for almost 50 years, you know, more, longer than most people who are principally concerned about it were alive. And the sort of dramatic rightward shift of the Supreme Court and the massive departure from 50 years of precedent was a kind of a stunning blow. And, and most people in the legal community, frankly, even those who, who may support stronger restrictions on abortion, were, were pretty surprised um, when the draft leaked to see uh, that the court was willing to go that far. So when we think about you as an employment employment law expert, rather, and thinking about how companies have responded, I'm wondering if you can talk about what you're seeing and how recruitment and retention of workers may be impacted. Well, sure. So, you know, in, in, in June last month, the unemployment rate was 3.6%, which is a, a massive historic low. And what we're seeing is here in the midst of what the media is calling the great resignation, what, what we're seeing is an unprecedented level of competition for talent 
when employers are out there looking for looking for employees or looking to to retain their existing employees. In mid-July, McKinsey had a survey that said 40% of workers in the United States are thinking about leaving their jobs. In in an environment like that, em- employers are looking for any kind of advantage they have they can find in the recruiting wars, right? And and so as as the Dobbs decision came down and overturned Roe v. Wade, and as we're about to start seeing a ton of conservative states increase or implement restrictions on abortion, this is just one of many tools that, that we're going to see employers continue to use in terms of trying to recruit and retain employees. You heard your, your governor, that clip that you just played, your, your governor is talking about it right now, which is, hey, move your businesses to Connecticut. Um, you're going to see employers use that exact same kind of, of pitch, which is we either a we are already in a state that is that is friendly for women's health care. So please come here and work for us or b no, you know, we're, we're located in a state that's not as friendly towards women's health care, but we're going to implement policies that allow you to access these kinds of health services as almost as easily and cost effectively as folks who live in those states. And if a company isn't being uh, forward about uh, what their benefits are, you might see some potential uh, employees before they uh, agree to work for a company scrutinize certain benefit plans. You know, will it cover abortion care? Would I be reimbursed if I were living in a state that had uh, uh, you know restrictions on abortion? Uh, we know that there are funds uh, to help people uh, travel to states for abortion care. I'm wondering if you can talk about that. Yeah, you know, I, and this is this is really where the Great Resignation and the 3.6% unemployment rate really start to factor in, which is just a couple of years ago, when employees were applying for jobs, and even those who were thought that they had enough power to negotiate, what did employees talk about? Salary, vacation time, job location, remote work, as that became more popular. It was so rare, even just a couple of years ago, for an employee to spend any time at all looking at an employer's health benefits before taking a job. And I think we're going to see, and we are seeing, a dramatic shift as employees are asking the exact questions that you're talking about, Lucy, which is, hey, what what does your policy cover? And and it's, I think, twofold. It's not just, what does your policy cover? What kind of benefits can I expect? Because, of course, you know, most employees are hoping that they're not going to need this kind of care or that their loved ones are not going to need this kind of care or their their, their spouses or partners or, or children are not going to need this kind of care. But you, you take that one part, which is what kind of benefits are available to me? And then you take the second part, which is, are you as an employer, as a company, are you willing to make a, a public statement about this? Are you going to take a public stance? And does that align with, with my values as an incoming employee? When you mentioned uh, taking a public stance, uh, we're going to be hearing from an employee of PetSmart uh, coming up. Uh, um, she's looking to hear more from her employer about uh, you know, the benefits uh, to her and her colleagues. But when we think about some of the, I guess, how a company would assess legal ramifications, you know, if they employ uh, particular staff in a state with restrictions, you know, you're in, in Texas, we know that part of the law is if, if someone is seen as aiding or abetting abortion care, uh, that you know that there will be a penalty for that. Yeah, so this is going to be the, the the legal question that we're going to see over and over again, right? And so yeah, so here in Texas, which as if anyone of your listeners need to know this is is very abortion unfriendly, right? 
Um, just a couple weeks ago, uh, a group of legislators in our state legislature called the Texas Freedom Caucus, which is just short for very, very, very conservative state legislators, sent a letter to, of all places, a law firm, a large employer here in Texas um, called Sidley Austin, who was offering this kind of uh, benefits to, to employees. And these folks, these state reps, sent a letter saying, we think you're violating the law. We think you're subjecting yourself to criminal prosecution. And oh, by the way, even if you're not violating the law, when the legislature reconvenes in January of 2023, we fully intend to pass more laws uh, that will make sure that we are that we are criminalizing or penalizing the kind of behavior that, that you guys are engaging in, which again is offering offering whether it's travel reimbursements or uh, cost of healthcare reimbursements for folks who travel outside the state of Texas to get abortion care. Again, you're hearing Mike Golden, lecturer and director of advocacy at the University of Texas School of Law, also an employment law expert, as we talk about how the corporate world is responding to the overturn of Roe v. Wade. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Uh, I'm curious, when we, of the companies that we have heard, these major companies that have come out and expressed their commitment to cover abortion care and potential travel costs, uh, any companies where you were surprised about um, their statement? You know, it's, I can certainly say there were many companies that were just sort of obvious to me, right? Like Starbucks, that's pretty obvious. This is a company with a very, you know, liberal public face. Um, A lot of tech companies you would think of. Tesla was a bit of a surprise, uh, given their CEO's sort of rightward bent, if you will. Um, But what you're not seeing is, uh, is, um, companies that are truly, truly, truly targeting their um, their consumer base with with people who are right leaning folks. Like for example, I, I don't expect to see Walmart making this kind of a public statement. Even if they ultimately decide to make to offer these kinds of benefits, they're certainly not going to tout them because you think the overwhelming majority of their customers um, may not support uh, this kind of stuff. Joining us now on Zoom is Isabella Burroughs. She's a 20-year-old full-time hourly worker at PetSmart in Michigan. And Isabella has spoken out about wanting to hear more about her employer about abortion care, given the Roe decision. Again, uh, Michigan, I believe, is a state with an abortion ban that has been blocked in court. Isabella, welcome to our show. Hello. Thank you for having me. So we just heard from Mike Golden about how major companies are responding. You've worked for PetSmart, I believe, for more than two years. What was your reaction to the Supreme Court decision, and what have you heard, if at all, from your employer? Um, so it's going to be two years in September. Um, but my <laughs> first reaction, um, I, I ended up finding out that it had officially been overturned by a customer while I was at work. Um, and at first I was a little bit surprised, but at the same time, um, we knew this was going to happen. It was a matter of when. And then um, I just began to feel sad for women and uterus owners out there because it doesn't just affect cisgendered women, it also affects um, trans men or non-binary people. Um, and, uh, when it comes to work, we haven't, we haven't heard anything from PetSmart and, um, I'm not surprised. I 
never expected to hear anything from corporate or even some level of management about the overturning of Roe v. Wade. They um, they really try not to make any public statements about uh, really big political uh, um, political uh, basically <laughs> challenges. Mm-hmm. Now, I, you said you've been you'll be there for two years as of September. You know, as a young adult, you know, how do you think this decision will impact you and your coworkers' employment decisions in the future? Um, I think it will affect a lot of us um, in a way that we don't understand just yet. Um, I mean, for some of us, we're still young. We're not really thinking about those sort of things, but um, some of us are in relationships and, you know, with relationships comes, um, you know, sometimes pregnancy scares and all that. And for a lot of my coworkers, I'm worried that they will not get the health care that they so desperately need because <laughs> the majority of us cannot afford to have children or afford to um, do uh, what it takes to avoid having those children. I believe you told the New York Times that you didn't feel a sense of relief when you saw that other companies were putting out statements and thinking about ways uh, to support their workers. Uh, again, do that do you think that will impact you know your future plans? Uh, you know, as given all of the the concerns that you have, Isabella. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, when I leave PetSmart. Um, and I go down a different career path, I, it will 100% be on my you know, pros and cons list of working for certain companies. Um, it'll be on that list where um, I have to wonder either can I afford to do this on my own or am I going to need assistance because, with benefits because this is how the world works now. You have to figure it out before you even get there. Mm. Mike Golden is still with us. Mike, I wonder if you can respond to what Isabella shared with us. Well, I mean, I, I, I think Isabella's point is, is exactly what's on the mind of so many people these days, which is if this is going to be the reality that we're going to live in for a while, and, and this care is, is so essential. And, you know, she mentioned that, that these issues are not unique to cisgendered women, which is true, but not only does it affect um, all kinds of folks personally, it also affects all kinds of folks through their relationships, right? Um, whether you're in a relationship with a woman or you're, you know, you're married to a woman or you have a daughter or in some cases a parent who are going to be subject to these kinds of restrictions. And so I, I think that we're going to see over and over again exactly what Isabella is talking about, which is not just are these policies, are these services that are going to be you know, reimbursed or covered or assisted by my employer but then a step further, which is, is my employer going to be willing to say that publicly? Because, of course, policies change, too. And I think folks are going to want to know that not only do their employers provide these kinds of benefits, but that they are committed to providing these kinds of benefits. And when we talk about benefits, uh, you know, help 
paying for childcare, Mike. We know, you know even in Connecticut, we're in a, a childcare desert. Uh, so many providers closing, not enough uh, pro- early education providers for all the families that need childcare support. Well, I mean, it, it's it, it's just a it's just a big you know ter- terrible circle when you think about it, right? The the Great Resignation has affected every kind of industry and it's a chicken and the egg problem right we know that unemployment is at a historic low but we also know that women returned to the workforce at a much lower rate following the pandemic than men did and while we don't have sufficient data to be for sure what's going on it's obvious that help that child care is a significant cause of that problem and and you've got a twofold problem part one is there was never enough child care to begin with Childcare is expensive, and if your job doesn't pay enough that you can afford child childcare, then then you find yourself in, in trouble. But then second, if 40% of American workers are thinking about quitting their jobs, that means 40% of American childcare workers are thinking about quitting their jobs. And when they do, childcare centers and schools are going to struggle to provide the, the levels of service and, the, and, the, and support the number of children that they have, which is, again, going to make it more difficult for primary caregivers, whether they're women or men. To, to keep their jobs. You know, looking ahead, uh, when we think about some of the ramifications for employees in states that have restrictive laws, um, not we, we should expect that some people may be fired for seeking or receiving an abortion, Mike. Yeah, so uh, the United States' employment law is built basically on a concept that's called at will, which means most employees in America can be fired or quit their jobs for any reason or truly no reason at all, which is what a layoff is, of course, is you've lost your job for no reason that relates to you anyway. Some states, not a lot, but about a dozen or so, have laws that we call lawful off-duty conduct laws. And what these are laws that say you cannot fire somebody for doing something when they're not at work that is otherwise legal. And an example that I often use is, is Colorado, who has, who has this kind of law. Texas does not have this kind of law, by the way. Um, but Colorado has a law that basically says you can't fire somebody because you learned that while they were not at work, they did something that you didn't like, but that was legal. Um, many states, including Texas, where I live, don't do that at all. And in, in you know, in, in Texas, you could fire somebody because you found out over the weekend they put beans in their chili, which is kind of a sin here, right? Um, but there are states that protect that. What's ironic about those protections is they actually originated in some of the most conservative states in the United States, which is funny because conservative states tend to have fewer protections for employees. But those, a lot of those laws originated in conservative states because the type of lawful off-duty conduct they were trying to protect was cigarette smoking. It's, it's cheaper to employ non-smokers if you're an employer. And so employers toyed with the idea of having rules that said, if you're a cigarette smoker, you, you can't work here, or if you dip tobacco, either one, if you use tobacco products, you can't work here, drives up our insurance costs and increased absences and increases the need for break time. So we don't want smokers working for us. And states whose economies had significant um, contributions from tobacco growers, which are primarily in the South, as you know, um, passed laws to prohibit that. And some of them didn't want to pass specific laws that said you can't fire someone for being a smoker because then you're revealing that the tobacco lobby owns you. And so instead, you pass a law that says you won't fire somebody for doing something outside of work that is otherwise lawful. And what we're going to see, and this comes right back to the way that that conservative states are going to try to attack these policies, what we're going to see is as states pass laws that say things like not only can you not 
get an abortion. You can't help someone get one. You can't pay for one. You can't drive someone to an abortion clinic. I mean, we're going to see every single one of those kinds of laws in some of these states. You are going to see employers start to, on, on the conservative side, start to look and say, well, that, that's a law and you broke the law and I don't want someone working here who's, who's a lawbreaker. We appreciate the context you've provided us. Mike Golden, again, lecturer and director of advocacy at the University of Texas School of Law. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Also, thanks to Isabella Burroughs from Michigan. We appreciate your time and good luck to you, Isabella. Thank you. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up after the break, we hear from Beth Silvers, co-host of the Pantsuit Politics podcast, and we'll take your questions too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we've been talking about the corporate world, specifically how companies have responded to the overturn of Roe v. Wade. Now, Hearst, Connecticut reported Bloomfield-based Cigna, which has employees in all 50 states, already offers employees and their families travel reimbursement for certain health services. And the company says it's expanding that benefit to include abortion care, gender-affirming care, and behavioral health services in states where access is restricted. Now, a July report by the conference board found that only 10% of companies have made public statements after the Dobbs decision. Joining us now on Zoom is Beth Silvers, co-host of the Pantsuit Politics podcast and co-author of the book we all need to read, Now What? How to Move Forward When We're divided about basically everything. Beth, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I wonder if you can respond to our previous guests and what you heard. What stood out to you? I think that both Isabella and Mike help us understand that this is an infrastructure issue. Corporate America is getting involved not from a space of altruism, but because we truly do not have the infrastructure to support the policies that states will enact and are enacting in the wake of Dobbs. We don't have enough health care access available and affordable for everyone who is going to be in a situation where they're either giving birth birth or suffering the ramifications um, of a birth that has devastating effect. We don't have sufficient child care available. We simply cannot support um, a, a maximalist policy on abortion. And that's where we see states going. And when we talk about the uh, impact of inaccessibility to abortion, you know, heavily falling on marginalized communities, you've written about that recently. Uh, tell us more. We already fail transgender people and non-binary people in our healthcare system in terms of the access that they have to healthcare. Um, we already fail populations like black women who we know carry a greater risk of maternal mortality. And so when you look at the status quo and you layer onto that status quo, uh, laws that are going to impact not only people's access to services, but just their relationship with providers, their concern about asking questions, um, creating another level of um, disconnect between people and their providers is going to worsen outcomes that are already bad for marginalized groups. Right. Uh, earlier, we've talked about abortion care relief funds, and some companies have said that you know they will uh, pay uh, for employees if they need to travel to outside the state for care. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this, on this for funds when we think about maybe this is a Band-Aid approach. 
I think it is a Band-Aid approach. Look, I believe in civic participation in all spheres. So I am always happy to see individuals and organizations doing what they can in the wake of what they see as bad public policy. At the same time, I spent five years in a human resources role. It was difficult for people to tell me about their plans to retire. Anything personal is difficult to communicate with an employer. There are lots of reasons for that, but I worry about the existence of these funds and what it will take for employees to actually access them, for them to feel comfortable talking to a supervisor, what those channels of communication will be like, and what forms of retaliation might exist or be perceived to exist because of people's personal feelings about the ethics of abortion care. I think that's an important point because you know even if a fund was available, you know the the low number of of employees who would even feel comfortable accessing that. Right. Do I feel safe? to tell my employer that I need to travel for abortion care. And when my employer can be represented by um, a line manager all the way to a vice president of human resources, the size of the organization is going to matter, the culture of the organization. We are just trying to tackle what is a shared problem in silos right now because of the court's decision. And and I'm not mad at that. I just want to say it's not enough. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, as we talk with Beth Silvers, co-host of the Pantsuit Politics podcast about um, how the corporate world is responding to the overturning of Roe v. Wade. I had mentioned uh, this recent conference board report about 10% of companies, uh, only 10% rather, have addressed the Dobbs decision, I think out of a survey of 300. I'm wondering if you can respond uh, to that response to the survey. It's not surprising given how polarizing this issue is, but you heard from Isabella uh, that she's going to be prioritizing company stances as she takes a look at her employment opportunities. And I think she is not alone, especially generationally. I worry a little bit about how this is going to further exacerbate our sort of red and blue state divides, because I do think, um, as Mike pointed out, that we're going to see companies making decisions about where do I build a new headquarters? Where do I expand? in my locations to communicate to employees how they value access to health care. And we could see states that are already economically depressed, which tend to be the states passing the most draconian restrictions on abortion care, um, further falling behind economically. And, And I don't think that's a great thing for our country. No, not at all. I'm wondering, though, if you can contrast when, you know, after the murder of George Floyd, the number of corporations that spoke out about the importance of addressing, um, you know, racial inequality, but, you know, to to compare that to, you know, this this particular issue, again, um, you know, whether someone uh, thinks that abortion um, should be accessible to all and, and why so few uh, companies are responding. You know, is it because of the legal ramifications that um, they may face in certain states? I think it has to do with the legal ramifications. I also think that we have just uh, forced for most of our history, attached a level of shame around sexuality and, and specifically around women's reproduction. Um, as much as our discourse has come a long way on that topic, I think that the the past couple of weeks and the fallout of the Dobbs decision illustrate that we haven't come as far as we need to. You know, we still have a country where a lot of people, when they're talking about being pro-life, are talking about 
one specific situation that they imagine um, a, a woman who is not married, who doesn't have any children, who has a pregnancy scare and decides to terminate the pregnancy. And we know from data and from people who have worked in abortion care for decades that often we are talking about women who are already mothers. We are talking about um, people who are uh, in all kinds of relationships. We're talking about people who desperately want their pregnancies and are unable to carry them to term um, for health reasons. And so we, we just need to establish a more complex view of this. And we're not getting there, I think, because we still regard pregnancy as associated with sex and sex is associated with with shame and being so private and personal. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Beth, given your HR uh, experience, you know, I'm wondering if you can talk about you know, the broader impact of the Dobbs decision um, from that perspective. I think long term, it is possible that we will see our labor force shrink even further, both because of people who are unable to work because of an absence of childcare, because of the consequences of carrying pregnancies to term that have devastating health impacts. And I think it's possible that our birth rate will decline. Uh, We are already hearing young people talking about taking pretty extreme measures, vasectomies, um, having their tubes tied, like taking these measures to ensure that an unplanned pregnancy is not on the table for them. Couples who have concerns about um, their ability to carry a pregnancy to term are are writing to us and saying, we're not sure if it's safe for us to try to get pregnant since we're not sure how the how the pregnancy would go. And now we don't have options. So we could see both a population decline as well as the kind of labor force participation decline you would expect to see uh, when you're adding more children into a world where we don't have adequate child care for them today. You know, a lot of the show we've been talking about um, benefits uh, for employees and how companies are responding, maybe even using it as a recruitment tool if they're a company that wants to make sure their employees have access to any care uh, that uh, they are seeking. But I'm wondering in terms of just workplace conversations, uh, you know, advising staff on, you know, should they be increasingly aware of the language they're using, you know, if this comes up at the office? I think this is such a tough issue for workplaces because the truth is people want to talk about these issues. Uh, we cannot we cannot escape from politics. We cannot compartmentalize, especially when we're talking about healthcare because we've tied up so much of our healthcare access and funding in our workplaces. You know, I would encourage um, workplaces to be supportive of those conversations happening, um, but with some guidance just to say to people, we don't know what experiences surround us in our workplace. So please be cognizant that you don't have all the information about your coworkers. You don't know how your statements are going to land. Um, You don't know who you might hurt inadvertently through these statements. Um, So let's be mindful of that. And let's also put some limits on when and where and how we have these discussions so that we're sure the people included in them actually want to be part of them. Right. And everything that you've shared with us, of course, also relates back to the the wage gap. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, I've mentioned that you're co-host of the the Pantsuit Politics podcast. I'm wondering what you're hearing from listeners since the Dobbs decision, Beth. We have heard really since the hearings to confirm Justice Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court intensely personal stories of sexual assault. 
and we continue to hear those stories in the wake of the Dobbs decision. We have heard a number of stories about people who are suffering with infertility and are concerned about the impact that the Dobbs decision will have on their access to care. Um, our audience has really been hurting, I think, across the board. Even people who identify as pro-life generally are concerned about how maximalist states like Texas are becoming. States like my state of Kentucky, where there are very, very few exceptions to a prohibition on abortion right now. And to see those draconian measures going into place, especially without coupling them with support for people who experience pregnancy, it has just left a, a real sense of despair and um, a real hope that we can, through our elections and through corporate action and through the action of places like NARAL and Planned Parenthood, who've been fighting these fights for decades, uh, that we can make some progress to have a more supportive climate across the United States. Mm. And lastly, a point that you made recently that we need to act with purpose, not with violence. Uh, tell us about that point. Uh, what would you say to those who think maybe it's a naive, naive way to think? Yeah. Well, history doesn't bear out that it's a naive way to think, you know, every every movement for rights that has been successful in our history has had a sustained, disciplined and peaceful focus. And I'm not talking about being polite to each other. I'm not talking about things like, you know, interrupting a Supreme Court justice when they're out to dinner. I'm talking about actual violence. Um, that will only hurt the populations that we worry most about how this decision will impact. And so if you if you really want to help marginalized communities, people suffering because of jobs, the best thing that you can do is plug into those organizations that know how to do this work peacefully and through democratic channels and and vote for candidates who reflect your values on these topics. That's Beth Silver, co-host of the Pantsuit Politics podcast, co-author co rather of Now What? How to Move Forward When We're Divided About Basically Everything. Beth, thank you for your time today on the show. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show is produced by talk show intern Anya Grandolski and senior producer Tess Terrible. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>